You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Steve Aylett is the author of Nova Head, Fame the Saucer, the complete accomplished Smithereens Slaughtermatic Lint biography. He's also the author of Hyperthick, a collected edition from Floating Worlds Comics. Thank you for joining me, Steve. Thank you for having me. Uh, Steve, what, what you do is often referred to as satire, and I think that doesn't do your work justice. Are there any examples of your work that you feel are specifically, you know, a response to another work in and, and tr- terms of trying to create a satire or a parody? Um, well, I mean, if you look at Lint, uh, that was really a kind of a biography of a science fiction author who didn't exist. And it meant that I could, uh, I mean, it was it was partly, I mean, there was a little bit of parody in there, but that's, I don't consider parody to be the same as satire. I think it was um, the main reason that I did that is I'm always really looking for, I mean, what what I'm interested in are ideas, images, and jokes. And the, the, a medium that I can get that where I can like put as much of that in as possible, like have as many jokes, as many images, as many ideas on the page as possible. That's 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 what I like. And with Lint, it was um, that was ideal because it was like, okay, then he wrote this story where this happened, then he had this idea, then he did this where there was this idea, and then you know, so I could like I could get rid of so many ideas that way. Um, but the satire aspects, and I mean, I kind of did did that with Hyperthick as well. You know, I mean, there's Hyperthick is just so rich um, because there's uh, it's kind of unmoored from storyline a little bit, <laughs> and uh, it's just people, you know, it's just pe- people being put into positions where they can say these things, you know, um, one after the other. <laughs> but um, the satire thing is just i'm you know i'm just into that it's not really in response to other works uh because that's parody and i'm i'm not so much into parody the only time i've done a straight parody of something is i did a a book called atom which was like my like every author is more or less obliged to do a to do a sort of a a takeoff of the maltese falcon at some point in their career and that that was mine, you know, where I did Atom. So it was the, you know, so there was the Sydney Green Street character going, you know, I admire a man, sir, who admires a man, sir, who admires, you know, all that kind of thing, you know. Um, but uh, most of the time, I, I I mean, I'm not really into parody generally, but um, I mean, satire to me is the kind of very specific set of devices um, and mechanisms where, I mean, it, it works in various different ways. I mean, one is the kind of bait and switch where you claim, where you pretend to be agreeing with someone's view and then you take that view to its furthest extreme. And the person who, who, who you, you know, thinks that you're agreeing with them and they go, oh, no, no, wait a minute. No, no, that's how, you know, we want, don't want to go that far, you know. Um, Although maybe that doesn't work quite so well these days because people just don't seem to have a limit of how far they'll go with their view, you know. So it's like they just agree with you, you know. So satire is becoming more and more difficult to do, really. It's because it doesn't really engage with people, don't have any shame anymore or any, you know, or any morality. So they don't, so the satire doesn't really, it doesn't engage with anything. It's just a thing that kind of flaps in the wind, you know, and it's just like, oh, what is that? But I still like it. I like the shapes involved in satire, and um, just it—you know—it's—it's a buzz doing it. You know, um, 
Well, I have to say, you know, about uh, Lint. I, I absolutely loved Lint. It was so interesting because, as you say, it gives you a chance to tell a story, but also tell all all the little bits of stories that the storyteller you're telling the story about tells, and you yeah. can just flip off ideas and and concentrate on just the idea behind the story without having to lay out a whole narrative that that wraps around it yeah i mean it's kind of a um it's kind of a a bit of a genre of its own that kind of inventing a inventing an author and then talking about what the author did i mean flan o'brien did it um someone i'm sure someone probably did it before him and after Flan O'Brien, of course, there was Kurt Vonnegut. Who yeah, did, Kilgore uh, Trout. Yeah, his Kilgore Trout things. So, um, but this was kind of that taken to the nth degree, but it was like, uh, it was just so good to just just shoot these ideas. I really like the, I really like the idea of, I mean, in, I think it's probably in Lynn where I talk about the idea of, of a writer who um, his uh, he writes in a way where every every sentence is coming directly at you all the time. So everything, so as you're reading it, it's all coming at you directly. And I really like that about Lint itself, that that book. You know, there was just uh, a lot of stuff in it. And um, I love that kind of thing. I mean, some people don't. Some people find it exhausting, <laughs> you know. But uh, I really love it. And uh and there are a few people out there who also love it, so that's nice. You know, there's an, uh, a book by Stanislaw called The Perfect Vacuum, which is perfect reviews of non-existent books. And his, oh, first, yeah. his first review in it is a review of the book itself, and his review is, is kind of dismissive. He says, well, this, is what, this perfect vacuum book would be good, but it's really just a list of the author's undeveloped ideas and be better if he wrote books instead. <laughs> But he's just obviously yeah. too lazy to do so. It sounds like he acknowledged at the beginning, okay, I'm now going to disappear up my own ass. Here we go. You know, like, <laughs> but yeah. But I mean, I, I really like kind of, um, I just like to deliver a lot, you know, in the same way that I like, I'm very demanding of books that I read that, are, that, that, that they deliver, become more and more demanding, really. I find fewer and fewer books that do that for me, you know? You, you know, you were talking about uh, Lint being an opportunity to shoot a sentence at every every sentence at the reader. And I'm looking here, and that illuminates The Caterer, which is a comic book supposedly by Jeff Lint. And on the cover, there are the, it kind of shows a half image of of the main character, I guess, Jack Marvson. And there are these, like, laser beams kind of penetrating the cover. And one of them's going into Marsden's head. And I thought, well, gosh, he's already doing what he wanted to. And so did you write the caterer after writing Lint? Uh, yeah, I did. Because, I mean, I did get a thing happening where there were people who were, who were fooled by the book. Who actually thought that Lynn existed? Okay, despite you know, despite the most ridiculous things in it, you know, like uh, I mean, you know, just all, all the stuff in it. And so I did get people have people getting in touch with me saying, "Well, where can I get hold of this guy's stuff?" You know, I mean, and you know, mainly Americans. I have to say, actually, I'm sorry, but and uh, it's um, so I thought. And then one day I was thinking, well, you know, it would be interesting to try. I didn't want to go to the extreme of like writing a whole book or really kind of disappearing into it to that extent. But um, I thought, you know, it'd be nice to do a comic. So I just did one issue of uh, of The Caterer because I'd really enjoyed kind of in making that up when I was writing Lynn. And I did a few images, one or two images for, from it. And and I thought, well, you know, I'll do one. I'll do one issue. And people seem to really like that one. Uh, I absolutely loved it. And was this your first uh, foray into graphic uh, novels or the, this kind of fiction where you did, so, in this you did one image, I guess in a hyperthick you did everything? Um, 
it's kind of like uh, in high with hyperthick. Uh, I was using old kind of um, public domain comics from the forties and fifties, and kind of like really redoing them uh, and messing with them. It's kind of like the old. I mean, that that whole thing is really like the old um, French uh, detournement thing, where they would like the French situationists would kind of get a American spy comic or something like that, uh, or a cowboy comic. And then they'd have very, very crudely, they'd write in a different thing into the speech bubble. So they'd have this American cowboy saying, you know, the workers must rise up or something like, you know, whatever. And, um, so it's kind of, that's, that's kind of a, it go, it's a tradition that goes back a, back away but i found that it really kind of um i really enjoyed doing it and there were things that were occasionally suggested by the just the expressions on the faces of the characters um that they would be saying certain things or or in certain situations and i don't think that i would have been able to get to that if I'd just written the comic and then sent it to an illustrator and said, okay, this guy has to look, you know, this way as he says this, I don't think I would have got the same effect. The effect is amazing. Uh, I have to say that talking about hype, both uh, Decatur and Hyperthick have the same effect. It's the, the comics are really beautiful. They are so dense. I mean, <laughs> To be, to be yeah. honest, you can probably read about a page at a time, then you put it down and think, oh my God, or maybe one little short story at a time, short bit at a time, and put it down and think, oh my God, let me resituate myself in the real world now. <laughs> so talk, talk about, you know, just the, the, is this done with Photoshop or how do you, I mean, the physics of putting this together. So pictures are scanned in or, or off the web or whatever. And um, then I, I put them through uh, artwork filters in Photoshop um, and usually have to do quite a lot of collaging as well because it's never exactly, you know, uh, it's never exactly how I want. So it's basically like um, putting it through filters to but to kind of redraw them uh, and clarify them because uh, like it looks really, cra- I mean, it's supposed to look a bit crappy in its final thing. It's meant to look a bit pulpy, you know, like pulp, but it's not supposed to look terrible. So by clarifying the lines and doing some actual redraw, when I say redrawing, some of it is actually redrawing, you know, and uh, recoloring and everything like that sometimes using filters, sometimes not, sometimes just doing it kind of manually and um, knocking dialogue out, making new dialogue bubbles and writing it. <laughs> the, the writing of it is actually the, the, the most fun part. Yeah, but it, that, that part can happen quite quickly. The making of the comic just takes absolutely ages. <laughs> It just takes ages to do, and it makes me feel like I'm going completely insane while I'm doing it because I'm working on the, all, all these little details, you know, these tiny little details. Oh, this guy's this guy's hair has got to have this sort of thing going down there. So I'm in there drawing in these these details just just to make the continuity, you know, things to do with continuity. So often the pictures will come from completely different sources, but it's supposed to be the same character. So I'll end up redrawing things. And there's a lot of blocking in of new color and uh, just firming up a lot of the lines, you know. But, um, and then sort of trying to work out what the story actually is. Because I mean, there's, I mean, the story's, it's pretty loose, but it does have its own logic to it, you know. I super love Hyperthick. I mean, it's just amazing. It's a book you can read for years and years and years and always enjoy it and, and get something new out of it. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like, I mean, for me, 
it's good to have it's really nice to have something that kind of there isn't any filler in there you know it's all it's all stuff and I I, I, I can be completely pleased with it <laughs> I probably shouldn't I shouldn't say that probably should I but I do like it a lot myself I mean I I basically write the kind of stuff that I would like to read so I'm I am a fan of my own stuff you know um maybe that Maybe that's my downfall as well in terms of like, you know, but no, I, yeah, hyper thick. I, I like it a lot. It still, it still makes me laugh sometimes. Like I forget things in it and then I get surprised. Would you mind reading on page 27, describe the scene where it's a gentleman in front of a row of other gentlemen. It looks like a business meeting or a UN kind of meeting. Just read what that guy says, which I think is... Uh, you know the the comic book is called uh, it's uh, Luca Bazooka. It's a girl. We see a girl crying into a handkerchief at, at on the top there. And above the title, it says, "When a man can't stop lying, it ends up making a sort of sense despite him, an assemblage whose design gives him away." And this is, uh, I'm going to ask you to read right here, um, The Three Bubbles Beneath, uh, The Education of Friends Early. There are moments when even a honeybee doesn't see the point. Okay, so this is a guy, I mean, this is like a politician talking to a, uh, a group of other politicians, and there's a big banner behind them which says, punch your own face. And the guy is saying, um, a snail is ambiguous, not me. I'm a team player with an iron fist. People tumble like garbage when deemed less than people, and that's the way I like it. And if the voiceless are far away, all the better. Yes, let's solve it all with a funeral unmatched. Ingredients in ruins, time saved. Don't get bogged down in discernment. I have created this policy in the exact likeness of a solution. Processing the notion generated so much heat, my hair curled up into the ominous bonnet you see today. We've run out of road and hey, it's gonna be a great year. If damned, I'll fry instantly, but why be contrite when I'm out of range? This is, you know, this gives I think a pretty good idea of what the content is here. And as I read this, I was trying to wrap my brain about, you know, how to describe the content. And to me, uh, I was brought up at long ago in an age, you know, I remember in college, I bought all the T.S. Eliot books, you know, The Wasteland, and I read them and they're, you know, intensely meaningful and, and deliberately profound. And I thought, this is kind of like what you might get if you asked T.S. Eliot to parody himself. Or to, to, to satirize himself. And, and so talk about, um, you have a really fascinating sense of what a story is. Um, because the story is in these juxtapositions of statements that contain both, are both absurd and profound simultaneously. It, it, it it's an interesting sense, and the story is more in the juxtapositions of the statements, with the characters kind of providing this illustrated backdrop. Yeah, I mean, I I like stuff that I mean, this was like hyperthick. I, I really love it because it's an it's kind of it's the perfect balance for me. It goes all the way from like really really stupid to really kind of meaningful and kind of funny in, in between and, and all this and kind of poetic and everything else, you know. So it's all these different kind of, and there's, you know, there's there's a lot of little sayings in there and all this, but the but it is it is absurd. I mean the characters, none of the characters seem to know each other's names apart from anything else. All the way through it, it's like a running joke. You know, someone says, well, Charlie, do you think... And the other person says, well, my name's not Charlie, but... Blah, 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 and it goes on like that. And the, and it's and it kind of leads 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 to the question, well, why, why are these characters in the same room having a conversation with each other? No one seems to know anyone, you know. 
and uh, I just I, I really like that. And I mean, I kind of like it's I, right now. I'm I'm again planning something that uh, I'm going to write a couple of books next year in 2023, and um, one of them is a definitely a sort of a fiction book and it does have a story and I'm kind of like thinking <laughs> and I'm having that's the bit that I'm having a struggle with you know I've decided it's going to have a story like that people can you know like because people do like a story and I always in the sort of 20 years ago or something I used to write books that had a story because people like that and seem to need it um, the last couple of things I've done hyperthick included there's only the minimum of attention, you know, of like, because I just want, I just want ideas and jokes and, you know, profundities basically. But this, this thing with this, this book that I'm planning, all, all the planning is going into working out what the story is because I've just, um, I've, I think I've forgotten how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> like, you I know. mean, I've got, like how to get, I mean, I've, I know, I know basically what happens in it, but the thing of like, um, I really like kind of very, very lateral characters. I mean, I think I, I like trickster characters, like the trickster kind of archetype of, of different characters. And I think with Hyperthick, I got to the point where all of the characters are trickster characters. So all, all of the characters, so there isn't a straight, so they they take turns as to who's the straight man, who's the funny man, but they're both they're all they're all you know there isn't a normal person in there, and so um, I think I think my problem is I've fallen into a situation where no I want it to be a story and I want people to understand, but those aren't the kind of characters that I write. I don't write characters who who react normally, you know. Or live a continual exist, live a continual existence, in a sense. Your characters, are, in a sense, kind of pop in and out of whatever reality they're in, and talk about or pay attention to. Although, if although if you if you look at if there is an explanation, believe it or not, there's an absolutely perfectly straightforward explanation for everything that happens in Hyperthick. If you look closely at it but i don't i don't know whether anyone does i mean i i kind of this is the thing i i sometimes put in these you know these very kind of detailed encoded things in the background that people are supposed to unlock and i don't think anyone ever, ever bothers i just don't i don't know whether anyone's bothered about really doing that they just kind of like or they just assume oh it's all just crazy and you know but uh, I do, I do, you know, devote quite a bit of attention to these to these details. It strikes me too that one of the pleasures of something like the Caterer or Hyperthick is you can read it like ten times in a row, and every time you read it, you're going to pick up something different. And every time you read it, it's like adding another piece to the puzzle so that you're going to come closer and closer to, to grokking what the what you think the author is doing as you read it which i think is an interesting way of of writing a story you know you have you fragment the narrative and put it into a mix master <laughs> essentially yeah um and also there's some i mean there's quite a bit there's quite a bit in hyperthick of um, framed narratives as well, you know, narratives within stories within stories. And there's one uh, thing, you know, in that in that detective story where the, there's three parts to it, and that basically kind of like he's telling a story, then within the story he's telling another one, and it goes it goes in I think three or four levels, and until. He's sitting in he's in that restaurant with a load of gangsters, and there's a po I've put a poster on the wall in the background of the Saragossa manuscript, you know, which is that book, which book and film, 
where there's loads and loads of stories within stories and it goes in about 10 levels. Mine doesn't go in quite that deeply, but, but uh, yeah, I do, I do like putting in those. I, I mean, frame, frame narratives can be great fun, but they can also, uh, if they go too far, they can become kind of airless. And so, and I, I kind of felt that at one point in this. So I had to say, listen, I know you're about to tell another story <laughs> and we're going to go another level down, but it's just, it's feeling a bit, you know, <laughs> and the character says, no, 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 just one more level. That's all I need. And then I'll come, we'll come back out again. So right in the middle of the thing, the, the characters are aware of, of what's going on, you know, but um, no, I like that kind of thing. But to me, that's, to me, to me, it's very rich in ideas and jokes and images um, and that to me that feels very fertile it's not everyone's cup of tea but well you know one thing this gets to when you're talking about the frame narrative it, it reminds me of uh, something called theory of mind which is the human ability to formulate you I make up a model of you and and how, so as I'm speaking with you, I'm saying, well, he's going to answer like this, so I'm going to ask him this kind of question because I want the conversation to keep going. And then that's the first level of theory of mind. And I think, well, how is he going to react to me and what I say? And that's the second. And then you can go back and forth to these, I think the maximum level that I understand you can kind of wrap your brain around is six or seven levels of theory of mind. So, and I think the the frame narrative acts in a, a similar way. Um, I think another, a more kind of common way of putting that is second guessing. <laughs> second guessing what someone else is going to, what someone else is thinking. Was it? But yeah, you can drive yourself crazy with it as well. You can really drive it. But I think too, for you, one of the things that I like is that you your uh, narratives are are you know visually really arresting and interesting. So you do you what comes first? The I guess the pictures all come first, or do you like think out like for example Benny the Hen, his story? Do you say okay I've got this kind of, I found this graphic of a guy I like, and I want him to do this, you know, I want him to, to attack farmers. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, well, that that character suggested to me, um, I mean, it's a slightly different thing than when I'm writing books, because there is actually a physically visual thing, but I am a very visual thinker, and I always for me, everything is a visual. Everything has a shape. Ideas have a shape. Uh, words have a shape. Everything. But with the comics, that character, um, when I saw him, he just looked so. He's smiling about something. He's smiling about himself. He's full of himself. But, and we never really find out why, you know, because he's not that great. He's just like... Tell us a little bit about B Benny the Henny. What did he suggest to you, and why did you decide to take him in the direction you did? I saw that character, when I saw the drawings of that character, the original ones, um, he just looked very kind of... He seemed very uh, full of himself and really kind of like self-important. And... And he also never, I mean, he, he occasionally sort of smiled to himself, but only about something that was going on in his head. So it was like, he just seemed like he would be a really annoying character. And he seemed to be some kind of boy detective. But, you know, it, in this, in, in, in my story, he just kind of show, he just shows up and begins to suck all the air out of the room, basically. <laughs> And yeah, they, by the third issue, that the people uh, around him are basically just making a plan to kill him off, you know, and um, and with no uh, no feeling no feeling of guilt or anything, just just like you know, yes, we've all decided this is what we should do, <laughs> but he's uh, 
but he's but at the same time he's an interesting character i mean i wouldn't want him to just be an irritating person you know i mean i find it difficult to write characters who are boring i kind of want all the characters to be really strange and interesting even the ones and and very articulate as well even the characters who are supposed to be stupid they're actually really all really really articulate you know what i mean so there's loads of stuff being delivered all the time uh, and this is what i mean by the sort of the, the trickster level of things that it's it's you know there's like 10 tricksters in one room you know it's like what's going to happen you know i like that kind of thing now you talked about your new novel um will you be is it uh science fiction or are you going to um, because it it strikes me that uh given your interesting characters and what they say though science fiction is a great genre for you know externalizing stuff so uh you can have superpowers or whatever. Um, yeah. It, it wouldn't necess- wouldn't be necessary. Uh, so are you going to, are you working on a novel that's set in a science fiction kind of reality or fantasy or? Um, it's, it's probably going to end up being maybe a little bit like a sort of a steampunk, just because just that, that just seems to be the way that it's going. You know, that's the shape of it. I just have, when I originally thought of it, it just looked that way, you know? So, um, yeah, that's what the sort of furniture is going to, that's what the stuff around it is going to look like. But the, again, all the, um, again, it, it kind of like starts off really intense and then gets more intense. And it's just like, again, it's just like everything coming directly at you the whole time. And it doesn't kind of, take any time to rev up because you know it something should deliver right from the beginning all the way through and it should still be delivering ideas at the end i mean you know with very uh with very plot driven books i find that um the writing i mean book plot driven books that i read um the writing can sometimes get very thin towards the end and it's not delivering anymore. And if it's an, a book that at least tries to deliver some ideas, by the end, it just gets completely taken over by the plot and there aren't any ideas coming through anymore. And I like the ideas to be there all the time. New ideas on every page just coming to, coming at you. And um, so I kind of like, uh, it's kind of like writing a whole book in the style that one would normally write a very short story in, you know? So it's quite dense and quite sort of um, compressed. There's a lot of compression in there, literally compression of information. That's all I'm into. I think people become a bit kind of undisciplined when they're writing a, a big book. I mean, I recently read some, some of Stephen King's short stories you know, and I was like, really, I was actually, no, I was actually quite surprised. These books, these stories are actually really good. I mean, his books, I just can't, they're so flabby. And there's just whole, I don't know, I just, I can't really get on with them. It's like, he's kind of like, let himself off the hook. And he's just sort of like, you know, kind of like it's like all the bones have come up, come out of his body and he's just like, that's what the books are like but his uh his short stories are actually kind of pretty you know some of them are pretty good and i was just sort of surprised you know like oh stephen king you know this guy can actually write you know and you wouldn't know it from his from his novels but where, with the short stories he has to have discipline and actually like clench uh sort of like clench clench the story around the characters and clench the story around the ideas rather than you know sort of half an idea kind of rattling around in this massive book you know of 500,000 words or something um so I was quite impressed by those and some of them were kind of a bit sort of science fictiony as well not um not not really horror you know 
Oh, exactly. No, I I enjoy, enjoy both of his forms of writing. I mean, his his longer books, I I find they're more uh, just portraits of current day America. That even with even with all the supernatural aspects, you know, there are more accurate reporting on on how Americans actually live. You know, in the late twentieth and early twenty first century, than than most of what you'll find on CNN or anything else where, you know, naturally so. Uh, that said, you know, one of the things that, that interests me, so are you working on another graphic piece? Uh, not at the moment. Um, oh, I am doing another. Oh, yeah, I think I, I, think I, I did recently. I did some, um, some cards, like it's sort of a tarot deck. You know, that's something I was thinking that that you could easily do because I've seen your posts on the social media and just which are just stills of some of the frames in the in the uh, in hyperthick, and even the 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 individual frames of your graphic works are so packed with ideas and with humor that even in a single one with a short sentence combined with you know the the image, which is always kind of eerie and and slightly off kilter, uh, I was going to say that you know you should get it in uh, Steve Steve I let I let uh, uh, green cards. You know you're going to yeah. give Hallmark yeah, a run so. for its money. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. But anyway, the main, I mean the main things I'm working on is is there's these two books. One of which is going to be uh, in the one of his, which is kind of like a non-fiction thing. You know, in Hyperthick, there are those sedition kitsch pages, you know, which are just text. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to make a book out of that. Oh, really? Uh, a whole book, kind of in the style of um, Heart of the Original, which is my book about, that kind of pretends to be about creative writing, but is really me ranting <laughs> so kind of ranting in a very literary way um so it's going to be kind of in the style of that but I, then, and the, the, the other thing is this kind of steampunkish thing um those are what i've got to concentrate on now um and not be uh not be distracted by little side projects you know and right I, so I, I haven't really got another um comic in mind at the moment maybe somewhere along the line now, now this other book you're you're talking about, um, sedition kitsch. Uh, I think that's neat. That's a fascinating phrase, especially here in America, where sedition is all the rage at, at the moment. Uh, so, uh, will you be like addressing like a political content? Uh, yeah, but the thing is that um, I find it doesn't really pay to tie political satire to specific characters because it dates very quickly. Mm. Um, you know, so I could talk about Trump or, you know, whatever, you know, orange clown, blah, blah, blah. But um, that would, you know, that would date like, you know, in, in sort of 10 years, it'd be like, oh, yeah, you know, that takes me back. That's I know when that was written, you know, that kind of thing. So it's better to, I think, write stuff that's a, a little bit more, uh, just more general. Uh, uh, no, general isn't really the word. Uh, specific, but specific as to the way that things operate without bringing specific people into it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, animal farm. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah, that's one way. That, that... Um, or, or, or talking about kind of people from way back, you know, way back. So it's kind of removed in that way, but it can still apply to now. Right, right. Um, uh, the lessons of history are, are never learned. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's just kind of like um, people expect, oh, well, if if uh, fascism came back, everyone would, it would still be like the same styles, you know, the sort of the black, black you know, black, black, white and red kind of stuff. But uh no, it, it, it came back and it looked very, very different. You know, uh, don't don't look at the don't look at the, the fashions. 
the look at the ideas, look at what's going on behind it. Uh, it's the same. It's the same playbook, you know. Look at the playbook that's being used. Um, but people are very easily kind of um, fooled by the stuff in the foreground, you know. You know, Nazism, fascism, American style is not going to be the same as the German version. It's going to look quite different, and it and it does look quite different, you know. Oh well, um, absolutely. But, but uh, people, you know, people, people. Well, you know. Anyway, I'm stating the obvious here. I, I don't like to state the obvious. What is obvious to you, my friend, might not be obvious. Uh, to the masses, and I think Hyperthick and uh, Lint are, you know, monuments <laughs> uh, uh, to that. Thank you. Uh, oh, there's you know, gonna. Oh, yeah. The other, the other thing. Oh, yeah. This is kind of like um, there's something else that's coming. <laughs> there's a thing that's coming out next year. Um, which is a new edition. Actually, it's the first time it will be published like properly uh, of this thing called the Tao De Jinx or the Tao De Jinx, which is like a collection of quotes from me. And it's like a kind of, it's, I guess it's like the most egomaniacal thing I've ever done. It's like, here's my wisdom, you know, that great wisdom. To it. But uh, so it's like, um, yeah, God. I mean, if you talk about density of of stuff, it's just thousands and <laughs> thousands. I don't know. I don't know how many quotes, but it's like all all these little epigrams and and you know. But again, it kind of like varies all the way from like really really stupid stuff about people setting fire to their trousers, all the way over to you know sort of stuff that actually is kind of quite meaningful. And I, so it's really me, me quite claiming to be incredibly wise. It's me also um, acknowledging that I'm quite stupid, quite stupid at times and don't really know what, what I'm doing. Um, but it'll be nice to see that uh, it's being pulled out by a, 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 a press called Anti-Oedipus Press. It's uh, D, you know, D. Harlan Williams. Wilson, who is uh, D. Harlan Wilson, who does the, you know, who's also a writer, who's done a lot of stuff. And, uh, yeah, he's got this little press. And, yeah, that'll be nice to see. Maybe you could read us a couple of, couple of paragraphs of, the, uh, of some of the sedition kitsch to give us an idea of, of to give the, the listeners an idea of what that's like, because I think that, uh, well, your writing is so individual that uh, explaining it, <laughs> it, it somewhat sometimes, you know, uh, loses the point, whereas when you have the ideas fired at our tiny brains from the rattling machine gun of your work. Well, there's the, there's the third, hang on a minute. Hang on, hang on a second. I'm going to take a look. Uh, this is from part three of Sedition Kitch in Hyperthick. So remnants of a cancelled timeline are always compelling in a lumpy way. Airships, flying boats, the North American camel. Moby Dick, Melville's long uproarious explanation of why everyone jumped in the water includes many references to whales' faces, which he complains are sulky. I contend that Melville too would be sulky if harpooned 17 times while exposing his blowhole, a danger he avoided by never pursing his lips. Photographs of the author depict a gentleman with three beards and no way out. When the First World War began with what was called the excuse heard around the world, it gave finished form to several interfitting schemes and errors. War and its resultant changes of ownership required persuasive accounting. In polarized times, Hermann Hesse's writing was like a window pane. Those on either side saw their enemy in it. Assured that this straightforward writer was cryptic, many sat understanding him till they were blue in the face. But he wasn't exactly a laugh riot. 
German jokes don't have much of a whip crack because their syntax puts the punchline in the middle. <laughs> anyway, that's, that gives an idea of, of that. Yes, it's me being clever. Uh, Hyperthick is published by Floating World Comics, so tell us a little bit about them and their operation. Because, I mean, it's interesting. This is challenging work. So <laughs> finding somebody to publish it for you is got to be equally challenging, I'm guessing. Um, well, I mean, I, I, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't send it to any big, I didn't send it to Marvel. You know, it's like I mean, there's no point doing it or DC or even any of the s smaller ones. Um, it's just that I, I sent it straight to uh, Floating World in Portland because they'd published the caterer. You know, that that's really all it was. And they were very kind of um, straightforward about doing it. They were very, very efficient and really kind of like, you know, really did a really good job of it. And uh, this, especially, especially the collected edition, I just really love the way that it looks and feels and everything. I think it's just, it's so nice. Um, but I didn't put myself through uh, the thing of sending it to, you know, Dark Horse or whatever, and you're getting some, or getting no response or whatever. I just, I just don't do that anymore. I don't do that with my books either. I just send them to people who I know are going to publish it because I, I can't be bothered to fuck around. I mean, I, the one time that I had a big a big sort of deal with a big publisher, um, I had, had a deal with Orion, which is who is a, we're a very big publisher over here in the UK. That was kind of in the early 2000s. And, Simon uh, Spanton? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Simon, yeah. And I kind of, and I realised retrospectively i realized that i should have at that point written something really normal kind of and sort of sold out kind of thing but instead i wrote the accomplice books which are just you know people just walking around kind of in inflating their heads with bicycle pumps and all this <laughs> kind of thing you know and it's like uh, and so orion kind of like uh quietly dropped me after a few years <laughs> but uh no so that didn't that didn't go on for very long but si since then i've really just sensed a lot of stuff to small presses um uh, and there's no there's really no point in my because just just because of the emotional um thing of uh i just don't put myself through it now you know I mean, there was one book. I mean, I think, as I think back on it, I think that Novahead, I don't think I ever send that to anyone. I think I just put that out myself, as far as I can recall, because I was just so, you know, I just I just had it with all this stuff. Um, so I try not to kind of put myself through that. It's in the same way that when, I mean, every few years I will get someone like from the movie world getting in touch with me and saying oh we want to make a movie of such and such a thing what and, book um, of yours did anybody want to make a movie of yeah i mean like the la the last one oh yeah there was a thing like towards the beginning of this year someone some big agency in america got in touch with me and said um Look, we've got all these A-list directors. We've got an A-list director. We can't tell you who, who he is, but he's interested in doing a movie of Lint and um, who's got the rights to it at the moment. And I said, well, I've got the rights. And I didn't hear anything back after that. I, I never heard anything more. But uh, and, it was, and it was probably Tim Burton. But it's like... And then prior to that, there was a thing with someone wanted to make a movie of um, Big at Hall, the very early one of mine. And uh, it was, uh, what's her name? Sadie Frost, who's a act, an actor. But she has her, um, she has a movie company, uh, production company of her own. So I went and had loads of meetings in London and, you know, all this kind of thing. 
and just had lots of my time wasted and then it, then it just went quiet and it that just always happens you know i have my time wasted for a while and then it goes quiet so these days i don't get excited about it i don't get you know because it's just like i got a very i got a limited amount of energy and i can't sort of be devoting it to being kind of having my hopes raised about a movie you know what i mean Oh, well, absolutely. I mean, creating a work like Hyperthick or Lint, I mean, that in itself is quite a bit of work. And it, for for the discerning reader, it pays off in spades. Yeah, I'm glad you say that. And it's like kind of, I think the more direct that I can be, just, okay, I'm just going to do it, you know, not having to wait on other people, not having to wait on a big production or on someone else's approval or anything like that, you know, just do it and get it out there. And, you know, um, anyway, people who are into it can be into it. Other people who aren't, doesn't matter, you know, uh, but, it, but it gets done, you know, and that's I like what that. matters. Yeah. Steve Aylett is the author of the caterer lint and his new collection, hyper thick, Comics, issues one through three, collected by Floating World. Thank you very much for joining me, Steve. Thank you very much, Rick. I'm glad we managed to do this finally. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.